Okay, if you would take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's good to have Josh with us today. So make him feel welcome. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians and Brennan. Good to have him as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. <clears throat> Bible says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that life also of Jesus might be manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. Thank you, Father, we have it preserved for us and in our own language, and we can study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. I pray today, fathers, look into the word of God, that you would uh, help us to give attention to your word, and uh, Father, to uh, have ears to hear and hearts to obey. We do pray to be in our midst this morning, Lord, who have never repented of their sin, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I pray today the Spirit of God would rest their heart, bring conviction and repentance. Have your will, may, may you be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In John 15, 16, Jesus, just before he was crucified, told his disciples, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. The word ordained means to appoint, to set in place. It's kind of the idea. In other words, he had chosen them and set them in place to be the vessels through whom Paul talks about this treasure, which is the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, through whom the gospel was to be taken and given to the world. So they were those vessels. And they have passed that on to you and I. We are those vessels now. Matthew 4.19, he says, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so the title of the message this morning is Vessels to Display the Power of God. And that's what we are. We're to be vessels to display the power of God. And first of all, notice and notice the, the vessel defined. In verse 7 it says, but we have this treasure. He's talking about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which he ends there at verse 6. He says, so we have this vessel, this treasure, that is the treasure, the knowledge of God through Christ, this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The, the, of course, a vessel is a holder or something. It's, it's, it's something you use that you put something in. Uh, it's a container, you might say. And, of course, the treasure is something of value. The vessel is really not of value. It's the treasure that's of value. Uh, you know, Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said again, the kingdom of heaven is like under treasure, hid in a field, 
which when a man hath found, he hideth it, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, and who, when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And that's what the gospel of the kingdom is. It's this treasure that is of more value than anything else. It is more value than the vessel that holds it. Moses spoke of this when he said in Hebrews eleven twenty six, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect under the recompense of reward. So he valued his relationship with God greater than all the treasures that Egypt had. And Egypt was the, the world power at the time. It was a place of, of great wealth and prosperity. But Moses said that treasure of my relationship with God is a great treasure above the treasures of Egypt. But this earthen vessel, when he speaks of an earthen vessel, he speaks of something made of clay. And it speaks of, or suggests, frailty. And it's a description of our earthly bodies. You know, in Oriental countries during Bible times, they used to keep gold and jewels in clay pots. Now these pots were of little value in themselves. Their value was in the service that they performed, and not in the pot themselves. And of course the treasure is of more value than the vessel, and, you know, the light is more important than the lamp that holds it. Uh, the content is more important than the container. All that is true. However, we must understand the vessel is important. Though it is of lesser importance. Think of it this way. Was Peter important to the church at Jerusalem? Was Paul important to the church at Antioch and to the church at Corinth, to the churches of Galatia in Ephesus? Was Paul important? He was simply the vessel. Shubal Stearns was important to Sandy Creek Baptist and to the churches of the South, out of which many of the churches in the South were started. Gary Forney was important to the First Baptist Church in Anubic. He invested 20 years of his life to see that church established. Pastor Webb is important to Calvary Baptist Church. But so is Jeremy Wright. Or Tim Wright. And we would say that you are important to the work of the Lord at Lighthouse Baptist Church. Though you were just made from the dust of ground, and really aren't, if you took all your elements of your body, you aren't worth a whole lot. And you are susceptible to frailty. You live in a body that's dying. It gets sick. Sometimes it becomes handicapped. But you and I are vessels by which the Lord has chosen to carry the treasure of God, the gospel, to the lost and dying world around us, to our family, our friends, our co-workers, those who we have opportunity to associate with. 
But the fragile, think of it this way, the fragile character of the messengers of Christ is one of the greatest proofs of the divine character of Christianity. I mean, were the disciples of the Lord Jesus prominent or popular people? Were they highly educated? <laughs> no, they were just ordinary people. The most outspoken of the group was emotional and sometimes unstable. His name was Peter. Andrew, he seemed to lack any leadership qualities. Thomas, he had a questioning attitude which would have been bad for company morale. Now, James and John, they place personal interests above company loyalty. They're more concerned about having a place in the kingdom. Then you had Thaddeus, or Simon, the Zealot. And he had radical leanings. He'd have been part of Black Lives Matter today. He was out to overthrow the Roman government. And then you had Matthew. Well, he was a tax collector. And he was probably blacklisted by the Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. What am I saying? Were these people that Jesus chose prominent or popular in Jewish culture? No, they were not. They were ordinary people. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You might say, thanks to yourself sometimes, well, I'm not anybody. There's nothing significant about me. Well, was there anything significant about James and John? They were fishermen. Or Peter, who was a fisherman. Or Simon. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now, it doesn't say not any. There were some that were mighty and some that were noble and a few that were wise, but there's not many. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. You see, it's not the vessel that's of great importance. It's the treasure in the vessel. Any willing vessel will do. I've said many times that your greatest ability that any of us have is availability. We have to make ourselves available. And so we see the vessel defined. I want to just notice, secondly, the power declared in verse 7. Well, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, the two words I want to define here, excellency means superiority or exceeding greatness or preeminence. And also the word power means strength or ability. So he says that the excellency, you know, in this vessel, this excellency may be of God and power may be of God. In first or, uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, uh, Paul wrote to the church of Philippi and says, And he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And then if you drop down to verse 9 through 11, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ, 
being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. You see, when men and women are converted to Christ, there is a new character of excellence that develops from a relationship with God. There's a desire for things that please God, a desire for to excel, to advance in knowledge and, and, and in grace and, 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 and to approve excellent things, right things, when a person has a genuine relationship with the Lord. In Colossians 2, Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it's, the Bible says, for I, uh, verse 1, for I would know, I would that you, for I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ. Notice this, this, this verse. In whom, that is in God, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, it's in God where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is found. I said a few week, a week or so ago that... You know, this Bible is not a science book, but it's scientifically accurate. Everything it says about science is true. It's not a historical book, but everything it tells us about history is very precise. If you want understanding and wisdom into the, into the, the, the needs and the, uh, character of man, read the Bible. Particularly read the book of Proverbs. In fact, you can't possibly understand the real, uh, 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 understand the nature of man unless you read the Bible. That's why the, most of the world thinks communism will live, will work, because they don't understand the nature of man. The nature of man is he's a sinner, he's selfish. That's why they can understand why communism will not work. And so, we see this excellently. It is of God. There's this power also. Then this power speaks of strength or ability. Strength or ability. And as I mentioned, the disciples, you know, were not educated men. They were not prominent or popular people of society that day. But in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, the Pharisees took knowledge of Peter and John and, because they perceived these were unlearned and ignorant men, but they marveled. And it says they took knowledge of them. They had been with Jesus. They're like, they're like scratching their heads. Where did these guys learn all this that they're telling us about? I mean, Peter and John were able to explain to the Pharisees who studied the Bible, the Old Testament law, and they were able to explain, and these unlearned, Fishermen were able to explain to these learned men the meaning of that law. Which they couldn't seem to grasp. And they're, and they're just scratching their heads. Where did these guys learn this? And it says they took knowledge of them. They had been with Jesus. 
You know, isn't it interesting the greatest library of ancient times was in Egypt? And the great philosophers were from Athens. But when God gave us the Bible, he passed by all of them. And he chose a people of a lesser nation to perform the greatest literary service in all time. And that's the Bible. He passed by Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the great minds and philosophers of the world. Uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian, Josephus, the Jewish historian. Uh, he passed by them. Uh, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine. Instead, he used ordinary people as vessels to pass on this treasure we hold. They were just ordinary people. Herdmen like Amos. Shepherds like Moses. Roy Lauren in his commentary said this, quote, What you can do is not necessarily by w- measured by what you are yourself, but rather by what you have in the way of treasure. The earthen vessel is valuable because of the treasure it contains. Again, Jesus says to his disciples, John 15, 16, You've not chosen me. But I have chosen you and ordained you. I have appointed you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. In John 20, verse 21, he says, Then said he to Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you as my Father has sent me, even so send I you into the world. You see, it is not God that calls the fit. It is God that fits the called. God does not call the qualified or he that chose Socrates, Plato, and, 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 and the Greek historian, and Josephus to give us the scriptures. Because these were the great minds of the day. No. He qualifies the called. First Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. You see that the excellency, we have this treasure in an earthen vessel, that the excellency of the power may be of God. You see, it is the Lord that enables us to glorify Him in this life which is filled with adversity. And what that brings us to the third point here. The practical exercise of this power of God. In verses 8 through 12, Paul gives some real life examples or exemplifies in real life, in real time, uh, this, how this power of God is demonstrated to a lost and dying world. If you notice in verse 8, he says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Now, let's define some words here. So he says, we're troubled on every side. Troubled here means a, to be compressed or afflicted, distressed, or one commentator used this word, hunted. Hunted. You know, think about Paul's life. It was like he was followed wherever he went by his enemies. It was almost like he was a hunted man. He was hunted. 
He was always under distress from people that followed him to try and do away with him. You know, some said, you know, it's not fit for him to live. And he said, so I'm troubled on every side. Everywhere I turn, front, north, east, southwest, wherever I go, I'm troubled on every side. Yet, I'm not distressed. In other words, I'm not reduced to straits. Now, what that means is, though I'm pressed on every side, and people are coming at me from every way, yet my ministry is not hindered. They can't keep the gospel. You know, you can't confine the gospel. They were trying, you know, it really, you know Paul really wasn't the problem. It was what he was, it was the treasure he was carrying, which was the problem. The gospel he was giving out to the world, that was the problem, that treasure. And though they could pressure him, they couldn't keep the gospel from going forward. He said, my ministry is unhindered. When they chained him to a Roman soldier, he preached to the soldier. And, is the interesting thing, he was, quote, allowed, quote, visitors. Who worked that out? He said, I'm perplexed. I'm perplexed. We are perplexed but not in despair. The word perplexed be to be at loss with oneself, to be in doubt, to not know how to decide or what to do. Do you ever feel like you're in a place sometimes and you don't know which way to go? You don't know what to do? Been there and done that, you know? You just don't know what to do. And Paul said, I'm perplexed. I've been perplexed. I've been in places where I didn't know what to do. I didn't know which way to go. Which way to turn? It kind of reminds me when Chris Shaw one day called his pastor and, and he was crying. He said, I, I just don't know what to do. He was perplexed. Sometimes in life we get perplexed. We don't know what to do. But he said, I'm not in utter despair. I'm not utterly at a loss. I'm not destitute of measures or resources. I still have God. And his pastor told Brother Saul, his pastor told him, Chris, get off the phone and put one foot in front of the other. He said, I get off the phone and I put one foot in front of the other. And he said, that quickly, the opportunity the Lord had for us opened up. You see, sometimes God allows us to get into places we don't know what to do so that he can show or demonstrate his power to us. See, Paul said, I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. You see, when you're bewildered or confused, don't give up. We sing that song. God knows the way through the wilderness. All you have to do is follow. That's all you have to do. 
We are not without help or means, even though we may be perplexed. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, children of Israel were in a perplexing situation. The Philistines came against them to battle. And they cried to Samuel. Finally went to Samuel. First Samuel 7, 8 says, The children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And then verse 9 says, And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And, and as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them. And they were smitten before Israel. You know, two men were cast into prison for preaching. And in the prison, they prayed and sang. And God intervened. Perplexed. But he said, we're not in despair. He said, well, I'm persecuted, but not forsaken. The word persecuted means harassed, assaulted. And Paul will later in the book, in the chapter, uh, in this book will tell us about all the things he suffered for the Lord and how he was assaulted many times. And yet, in many times he was assaulted. But he said, I've never been for, I have not been forsaken. I've not been abandoned. I've not been deserted. God has never left me alone in all those times. You know, the Lord said we would be persecuted just as he was. But he promised to give us his comforter. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So we boldly say, the Lord, my helper, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. In 2 Timothy 4, 16, Paul said, all men forsook me, notwithstanding the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. On September 5th, 1651, Obadiah Holmes was beaten. Boston Square. Beaten so badly, his blood filled his boots. Testimony of those that watched said he did not groan nor scream, but preached to the crowd. And when they had finished, he told the magistrate, quote, you have struck me as with roses, unquote. Obadiah Holmes testified later that he said he had experienced the greatest presence of God he ever knew. That God was with him and he felt it not. You see, persecuted but not forsaken. Cast down but not destroyed. Cast down means thrown to the ground. Oh, Paul was thrown into prison. He was thrown down many times. But he said, I'm not destroyed. I've never been eliminated or driven from the field of conflict, so to speak. The gospel continues to go forward, and much more so. Think of this. Because of the attention the enemies are bringing to me. Sounds like a wonderful life, doesn't it? But we need to understand something. Ease is never a part of attainment. 
Comfort is never found in conquest. Discipline belongs to discipleship. And that means activity, exercise, a regimen that develops or improves a skill. Punishment inflicted by way of correction and training. That's what discipline is. Rigor. Adversity. See, what we see here is that victory is not what we experience, but how we experience it. How we endure it. Again, one Roy Lawrence said, quote, Triumph is not escape from adversity, but it is bearing it to personal conquest. Unquote. James 1.2 says, My brother, encounter all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that trying your faith worketh patience. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You know, we like Romans 8.28, where it says, And we know, and right there is the key to that verse, no. We need to understand that all things, the adversities and the good things, all things work together for good to them that love God. I mean, Paul's persecution, his distresses, his, his, his being cast down, his being troubled, and everything, all that worked to bring forth the power of God being demonstrated in his life. All things work together for good to them the will of God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You see, it is bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. In verse 10 he says, always bearing it about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, it is, this is what the experience we call sanctification. As we allow the Lord to sanctify us, to work in our lives, to set apart things that are not pleasing to Him, to strengthen those things that are, and, and, and He gives us strength. The strength comes from enduring the trials and victory through the adversities that we face. Enduring that adversity with trust, compass, Lord, and joy and peace that manifests the life of Christ through us to the world. See, the word manifest really means to put on display. It's public exhibition. And what this is is a public... You know, Paul's life here is... He said, he's describing his life being used as a public exhibition of the power and glory of God. I mean, when... When people saw him, they thought, you know, the movies about Davy Crockett. And when people actually saw Davy Crockett, they'd say, hmm, he didn't look that impressive. That's the stories that were told about him. You know, that's how Paul was. Historians say he was not much to look at. Could this guy be causing all this that's said about him? And you know what it did? It sparked more interest. Think about it. Wherever Paul went, everybody knew about him. Everybody knew about him. Because of his, not because of him, because of his 
persecutors. And the things that he endured. Go to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5. And verse 44. Verse 43 says, You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. That's, that's the philosophy of the world. Okay? But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despite you, use you, and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and setteth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans or the world do the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. See, this is kind of, you know, what the Lord is describing here is enduring adversity, about enduring adversity and how you are to respond to it. How do you ever respond to those that oppose you? You see, the adversities, the hardships the Lord allowed in, in, in Paul's life and allows in our life uh, 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 result in the gospel being heard throughout the whole known world. It put Paul, the vessel, through whom this treasure was carried in front of people. Before people. People would look him, they'd look him up. In fact, in Acts chapter 28, when he went to Rome, and he called the Jews there to meet with him. And this is what those Jews said. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. What well, we know about you? We know about your teachings. And we know that everywhere it's spoken against. So we desire... To hear thee. In Second Timothy four seventeen, he says, "Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by my preaching, that by me the preaching might be fully known, that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of lion." You see, all of Paul's pains, his perils, adversities were means to exhibit the life of Christ. This is what we call living the crucified life. It's a continual dying to self that the power of God may be visible to the world. The purpose of experiencing Christ's death in our body is to reveal Christ's life in our body. Jesus said in John 12, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except the corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. You see, we must die to our selfish ambitions if we expect a fruitful life for the Lord. If He is to live through us, we must die in Him, die to self. That's what Moses did. Hebrews 11.27 says, tells us that he, by faith, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. 
for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And you might think, you know, just reading this passage sounds like a terrible life. But Paul didn't see it that way. When Paul came to the end of his life and he faced death, his testimony was this, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. See, what he was really saying is, I would do it all again. It was the most fulfilling life that I lived. You know, he, he knew what it was like to live on the other side. He lived it. He lived having power and authority of the government. He knew what that life was like. He knew what it was like to be able to arrest people and put them in jail and consent to their murder. He knew what that life was like. But he said, I'd rather have this life of dying to self. Being a vessel, carrying the treasure of the gospel. See, God gives purpose and meaning to life. Along with peace with Him, joy in the Holy Ghost. And we can all have that. If we know Him as our Lord and Savior, and allow him to use us as a vessel to carry the treasure of the gospel. Are you that useful vessel? Have you been saved or born again? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have peace with God, relationship with him. And are you allowing him to use you as a vessel? Carry the treasure of the gospel.